Section 14 of Eminent Victorians by Lytton Strachey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Florence Nightingale, Chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4. Sidney Herbert's death finally put an end to Miss Nightingale's dream of a reformed war office. For a moment, indeed, in the first agony of her disappointment, she had wildly clutched at a straw. She had written to Mr. Gladstone to beg him to take up the burden of Sidney Herbert's work, and Mr. Gladstone had replied with a sympathetic account of the funeral. Succeeding secretaries of state managed between them to undo a good deal of what had been accomplished, but they could not undo it all, and for ten years more, from 1862 to 1872, Miss Nightingale remained a potent influence at the War Office. After that, her direct connection with the Army came to an end, and her energies began to turn more and more completely towards more general objects. Her work upon hospital reform assumed enormous proportions. She was able to improve the conditions in infirmaries and workhouses, and one of her most remarkable papers forestalls the recommendations of the Poor Law Commission of 1909. Her training school for nurses, with all that it involved in initiative, control, responsibility, and combat, would have been enough in itself to have absorbed the whole efforts of at least two lives of ordinary vigor. And at the same time her work in connection with India, which had begun with the Sanitary Commission on the Indian Army, spread and ramified in a multitude of directions. Her tentacles reached in the India office and succeeded in establishing a hold even upon those slippery high places. For many years it was de rigueur for the newly appointed viceroy, before he left England, to pay a visit to Miss Nightingale. After much hesitation she had settled down in a small house in South Street, where she remained for the rest of her life. That life was a very long one. The dying woman reached her ninety-first year. Her ill health gradually diminished, the crises of extreme danger became less frequent, and at last altogether ceased. She remained an invalid, but an invalid of a curious character, an invalid who was too weak to walk downstairs, and who worked far harder than most cabinet ministers. Her illness, whatever it may have been, was certainly not inconvenient. It involved seclusion, and an extraordinary and unparalleled seclusion was, it might almost have been said, the mainspring of Miss Nightingale's life. Lying on her sofa in the little upper room in South Street, she combined the intense vitality of a dominating woman of the world with the mysterious and romantic quality of a myth. She was a legend in her lifetime, and she knew it. She tasted the joys of power, like those eastern emperors whose autocratic rule was based upon invisibility, with the mingled satisfactions of obscurity and fame. And she found the machinery of illness hardly less effective as a barrier against the eyes of men than the ceremonial of a palace. Great statesmen and renowned generals were obliged to beg for audiences. Admiring princesses from foreign countries found that they must see her at her own time, or not at all. 
and the ordinary mortal had no hope of ever getting beyond the downstairs sitting-room and Dr. Sutherland. For that indefatigable disciple did, indeed, never desert her. He might be impatient, he might be restless, but he remained. His incurable looseness of thought, for so she termed it, continued at her service to the end. Once, it is true, he had actually ventured to take a holiday, but he was recalled, and he did not repeat the experiment. He was wanted downstairs. There he sat, transacting business, answering correspondence, interviewing callers, and exchanging innumerable notes with the unseen power above. Sometimes word came down that Miss Nightingale was just well enough to see one of her visitors. The fortunate man was led up, was ushered trembling into the shaded chamber, and, of course, could never afterwards forget the interview. Very rarely indeed, once or twice a year perhaps, but nobody could be quite certain, in deadly secrecy Miss Nightingale went out for a drive in the park. Unrecognized, the living legend flitted for a moment before the common gaze. And the precaution was necessary, for there were times when, at some public function, the rumor of her presence was spread abroad, and ladies, mistaken by the crowd for Miss Nightingale, were followed, pressed upon, and vehemently supplicated, "'Let me touch your shawl. Let me stroke your arm.' Such was the strange adoration in the hearts of the people." That vast reserve of force lay there behind her. She could use it if she would, but she preferred never to use it. On occasions she might hint or threaten, she might balance the sword of Damocles over the head of the bison, she might, by a word, by a glance, remind some refractory minister, some unpersuadable viceroy, sitting in an audience with her in the little upper room, that she was something more than a sick woman, that she had only, so to speak, to go to the window and wave her handkerchief, for dreadful things to follow. But that was enough, they understood. The myth was there, obvious, portentous, impalpable, and so it remained to the last. With statesmen and governors at her beck and call, with her hands on a hundred strings, with mighty provinces at her feet, with foreign governments agog for her counsel, building hospitals, training nurses, she still felt that she had not enough to do. She sighed for more worlds to conquer, more and yet more. She looked about her. What was there left? Of course! Philosophy! After the world of action the world of thought. Having set right the health of the British army, she would now do the same good service for the religious convictions of mankind. She had long noticed, with regret, the growing tendency towards free-thinking among artisans. With regret, but not altogether with surprise, the current teaching of Christianity was sadly to seek, nay, Christianity itself was not without its defects. She would rectify these errors. She would correct the mistakes of the churches. She would point out just where Christianity was wrong, 
and she would explain to the artisans what the facts of the case really were. Before her departure for the Crimea she had begun this work, and now, in the intervals of her other labors, she completed it. Her Suggestions for Thought to the Searchers After Truth Among the Artisans of England, 1860, unravels, in the course of three portly volumes, the difficulties, hitherto, curiously enough, unsolved, connected with such matters as belief in God, the plan of creation, the origin of evil, the future life, necessity and free will, law, and the nature of morality. The origin of evil, in particular, held no perplexities for Miss Nightingale. We cannot conceive, she remarks, that omnipotent righteousness would find satisfaction in solitary existence. This being so, the only question remaining to be asked is, what beings should we then conceive that God would create? Now, he cannot create perfect beings, since, essentially, perfection is one. If he did so, he would only be adding to himself. Thus, the conclusion is obvious. He must create imperfect ones. Omnipotent righteousness, faced by the intolerable impasse of a solitary existence, finds itself bound, by the very nature of the case, to create the hospitals at Scutari. Whether this argument would have satisfied the artisans was never discovered, for only a few copies of the book were printed for private circulation. One copy was sent to Mr. Mill, who acknowledged it in an extremely polite letter. He felt himself obliged, however, to confess that he had not been altogether convinced by Miss Nightingale's proof of the existence of God. Miss Nightingale was surprised and mortified. She had thought better of Mr. Mill, for surely her proof of the existence of God could hardly be improved upon. A law, she had pointed out, implies a lawgiver. Now the universe is full of laws, the law of gravitation, the law of the excluded middle, and many others. Hence it follows that the universe has a lawgiver, and what would Mr. Mill be satisfied with if he was not satisfied with that? Perhaps Mr. Mill might have asked why the argument had not been pushed to its logical conclusion. Clearly, if we are to trust the analogy of human institutions, we must remember that laws are, as a matter of fact, not dispensed by lawgivers, but passed by act of Parliament. Miss Nightingale, however, with all her experience of public life, never stopped to consider the question whether God might not be a limited monarchy. Yet her conception of God was certainly not orthodox. She felt towards him as she might have felt towards a glorified sanitary engineer, and in some of her speculations she seems hardly to distinguish between the deity and the drains. As one turns over these singular pages, one has got the impression that Miss Nightingale has got the Almighty too into her clutches, and that, if he is not careful, she will kill him with overwork. Then, suddenly, in the very midst of the ramifying generalities of her metaphysical disquisitions, there is an unexpected turn, and the reader is plunged all at once into something particular, 
something personal, something impregnated with intense experience, a virulent invective upon the position of women in the upper ranks of society. Forgetful alike of her high argument and of the artisans, the bitter creature rails through a hundred pages of close print at the falsities of family life, the ineptitudes of marriage, the emptiness of convention, in the spirit of an Ibsen or a Samuel Butler. Her fierce pen, shaking with intimate anger, depicts in biting sentences the fearful fate of an unmarried girl in a wealthy household. It is a cri de coeur, and then, as suddenly, she returns once more to instruct the artisans upon the nature of omnipotent righteousness. Her mind was, indeed, better qualified to dissect the concrete and distasteful fruits of actual life than to construct a coherent system of abstract philosophy. In spite of her respect for law, she was never at home with a generalization. Thus, though the great achievement of her life lay in the immense impetus which she gave to the scientific treatment of sickness, a true comprehension of the scientific method itself was alien to her spirit. Like most great men of action, perhaps like all, she was simply an empiricist. She believed in what she saw, and she acted accordingly. Beyond that she would not go. She had found in Scutari that fresh air and light played an effective part in the prevention of the maladies with which she had to deal, and that was enough for her. She would not inquire further what were the general principles underlying that fact, or even whether there were any. She refused to consider. Years after the discoveries of Pasteur and Lister, she laughed at what she called the germ fetish. There was no such thing as infection. She had never seen it, therefore it did not exist. But she had seen the good effects of fresh air, therefore there could be no doubt about them, and therefore it was essential that the bedrooms of patients should be well ventilated. Such was her doctrine, and in those days of hermetically sealed windows it was a very valuable one. But it was a purely empirical doctrine, and thus it led to some unfortunate results. When, for instance, her influence in India was at its height, she issued orders that all hospital windows should be invariably kept open. The authorities, who knew what an open window in the hot weather meant, protested, but in vain. Miss Nightingale was incredulous. She knew nothing of the hot weather, but she did know the value of fresh air, from personal experience. The authorities were talking nonsense, and the windows must be kept open all the year round. There was a great outcry from all the doctors in India, but she was firm, and for a moment it seemed possible that her terrible commands would have to be put into execution. Lord Lawrence, however, was viceroy, and he was able to intimate to Miss Nightingale, with sufficient authority, that he himself had decided upon the question, and that his decision must stand, even against her own. Upon that she gave way, but reluctantly and quite unconvinced, she was only puzzled by the unexpected weakness of Lord Lawrence. No doubt, if she had lived to-day, and if her experience had lain, 
not among cholera cases at Scutari, but among yellow fever cases in Panama, she would have declared fresh air a fetish, and would have maintained to her dying day that the only really effective way of dealing with disease was by the destruction of mosquitoes. Yet her mind, so positive, so realistic, so ultra-practical, had its singular revulsions, its mysterious moods of mysticism and of doubt. At times, lying sleepless in the early hours, she fell into long, strange, agonized meditations, and then, seizing a pencil, she would commit to paper the confessions of her soul. The morbid longings of her pre-Crimean days came over her once more. She filled page after page with self-examination, self-criticism, self-surrender. "'Oh, Father,' she wrote, "'I submit, I resign myself, I accept with all my heart this stretching out of thy hand to save me. Oh, how vain it is, in the vanity of vanities, to live in men's thoughts instead of God's.' She was lonely, she was miserable. Thou knowest that through all these horrible twenty years I have been supported by the belief that I was working with thee, who wert bringing every one, even our poor nurses, to perfection. And yet, after all, what was the result? Had not even she been an unprofitable servant? One night, waking suddenly, she saw, in the dim light of the night-lamp, tenebrous shapes upon the wall. The past rushed back upon her. "'Am I she who once stood on that Crimean height?' she wildly asked. "'The lady with a lamp shall stand. The lamp shows me only my utter shipwreck.' She sought consolation in the writings of the mystics and in a correspondence with Mr. Jowett. For many years the master of Balliol acted as her spiritual adviser. He discussed with her in a series of enormous letters the problems of religion and philosophy. He criticized her writings on those subjects with the tactful sympathy of a cleric who was also a man of the world, and he even ventured to attempt at times to instill into her rebellious nature some of his own peculiar suavity. "'I sometimes think,' he told her, "'that you ought seriously to consider how your work may be carried on, not with less energy, but in a calmer spirit. I am not blaming the past, but I want the peace of God to settle on the future. He recommended her to spend her time no longer in conflicts with government offices and to take up some literary work. He urged her to work out her notion of divine perfection in a series of essays for Fraser's magazine. She did so, and the result was submitted to Mr. Froude who pronounced the second essay to be even more pregnant than the first. I cannot tell, he said, how sanitary, with disordered intellects, the effects of such papers will be. Mr. Carlyle, indeed, used different language, and some remarks of his about a lost lamb bleeding on the mountains having been unfortunately repeated to Miss Nightingale, all Mr. Jowett's suavity was required to keep the peace. In a letter of fourteen sheets, he turned her attention from this painful topic towards a discussion of quietism. "'I don't see why,' said the master of Balliol, 
active life might not become a sort of passive life, too. And then, he added, I sometimes fancy that there are possibilities of human character much greater than have been realized. She found such sentiments helpful, underlining them in blue pencil, and, in return, she assisted her friend with a long series of elaborate comments upon the dialogues of Plato, most of which he embodied in the second edition of his translation. Gradually her interest became more personal. She told him never to work again after midnight, and he obeyed her. Then she helped him to draw up a special form of daily service for the college chapel, with selections from the Psalms under the heads of God the Lord, God the Judge, God the Father, and God the Friend, though, indeed, this project was never realized, for the Bishop of Oxford disallowed the alterations, exercising his legal powers, on the advice of Sir Travers Twiss. Their relations became intimate. The spirit of the twenty-third psalm and the spirit of the nineteenth psalm should be united in our lives, Mr. Jowett said. Eventually she asked him to do her a singular favor. Would he, knowing what he did of her religious views, come to London and administer to her the Holy Sacrament? He did not hesitate, and afterwards declared that he would always regard the occasion as a solemn event in his life. He was devoted to her, though the precise nature of his feelings towards her never quite transpired. Her feelings towards him were more mixed. At first he was that great and good man, that true saint, Mr. Jowett. But, as time went on, some gall was mingled with the balm. The acrimony of her nature asserted itself. She felt that she gave more sympathy than she received. She was exhausted. She was annoyed by his conversation. Her tongue, one day, could not refrain from shooting out at him. He comes to me and he talks to me, she said, as if I were someone else. CHAPTER Five. At one time she had almost decided to end her life in retirement as a patient at St. Thomas's Hospital, but partly owing to the persuasions of Mr. Jowett, she changed her mind. For forty-five years she remained in South Street, and in South Street she died. As old age approached, though her influence with the official world gradually diminished, her activities seemed to remain as intense and widespread as before. When hospitals were to be built, when schemes of sanitary reform were in agitation, when wars broke out, she was still the adviser of all Europe. Still, with a characteristic self-assurance, she watched from her Mayfair bedroom over the welfare of India. Still, with an indefatigable enthusiasm, she pushed forward the work which, perhaps, was nearer to her heart, more completely her own, than all the rest, the training of nurses. In her moments of deepest depression, when her greatest achievements seemed to lose their luster, she thought of her nurses and was comforted. The ways of God, she found, were strange indeed. How inefficient I was in the Crimea, she noted, yet he has raised up from it trained nursing. At other times she was better satisfied. Looking back, 
she was amazed by the enormous change which, since her early days, had come over the whole treatment of illness, the whole conception of public and domestic health, a change in which she knew she had played her part. One of her Indian admirers, the Aga Khan, came to visit her. She expatiated on the marvelous advances she had lived to see in the management of hospitals, in drainage, in ventilation, in sanitary work of every kind. There was a pause, and then, "'Do you think you are improving?' asked the Aga Khan. She was taken a little aback and said, "'What do you mean by improving?' He replied, "'Believing more in God.' She saw that he had a view of God which was different from hers. A most interesting man, she noted after the interview, but you could never teach him sanitation. When old age actually came, something curious happened. Destiny, having waited very patiently, played a queer trick on Miss Nightingale. The benevolence and public spirit of that long life had only been equaled by its acerbity. Her virtue had dwelt in hardness, and she had poured forth her unstinted usefulness with a bitter smile upon her lips. And now the sarcastic years brought the proud woman her punishment. She was not to die as she had lived. The sting was to be taken out of her. She was to be made soft. She was to be reduced to compliance and complacency. The change came gradually but at last it was unmistakable. The terrible commander who had driven Sidney Herbert to his death, to whom Mr. Jowett had applied the words of Homer, raging insatiability, now accepted small compliments with gratitude and indulged in sentimental friendships with young girls. The author of Notes on Nursing, that classical compendium of the besetting sins of the sisterhood, drawn up with the detailed acrimony, the vindictive relish of a swift, now spent long hours in composing sympathetic addresses to probationers, whom she petted and wept over in turn. And, at the same time, there appeared a corresponding alteration in her physical mold. The thin, angular woman, with her haughty eye and her acrid mouth, had vanished, and in her place was the rounded, bulky form of a fat old lady, smiling all day long. Then something else became visible. The brain, which had been steeled at Scutari, was indeed, literally, growing soft. Senility, an ever more and more amiable senility, descended. Towards the end, consciousness itself grew lost in a roseate haze and melted into nothingness. It was just then, three years before her death, when she was eighty-seven years old, in 1907, that those in authority bethought them that the opportune moment had come for bestowing a public honor on Florence Nightingale. She was offered the Order of Merit, that order whose role contains, among other distinguished names, those of Sir Lawrence Alma Tadema and Sir Edward Elgar, is remarkable chiefly for the fact that, as its title indicates, it is bestowed because its recipient deserves it, and for no other reason. 
Miss Nightingale's representatives accepted the honor, and her name, after a lapse of many years, once more appeared in the press. Congratulations from all sides came pouring in. There was a universal burst of enthusiasm, a final revivication of the ancient myth. Among her other admirers, the German emperor took this opportunity of expressing his feelings toward her. His majesty, wrote the German ambassador, having just brought to a close a most enjoyable stay in the beautiful neighborhood of your old home near Ramsey, has commanded me to present you with some flowers as a token of his esteem. Then, by royal command, the order of merit was brought to South Street, and there was a little ceremony of presentation. Sir Douglas Dawson, after a short speech, stepped forward and handed the insignia of the order to Miss Nightingale. Propped up by pillows, she dimly recognized that some compliment was being paid to her. Too kind, too kind, she murmured, and she was not ironical. End of section 14